Uh, hey, parents, ready to send those kids back to school next week? Yeah. Hey, fellow teachers, uh, you're ready to go back to school next week? Nope, me neither. <laughs> me neither. Not ready to go back to school, uh, back to teaching next week. Um, there's one thing as a school teacher that I've never really gotten used to and gotten accustomed to or gotten over, and that's being observed. As a public school teacher, I have to formally be observed and evaluated every single year. That means that I schedule a time with my supervising principal, and they come in, and they sit in the back of my classroom, and they observe me while I teach for the whole class period. Do you have any idea how hard it is for me to behave for that long? <laughs> I, I don't worry about the kids misbehaving at all. I worry, I have to remember that I have to behave while they're in the room. <laughs> I've been teaching for, oh, you know, quite a long time, and I'm a good teacher, and, you know, I always get a good evaluation, but I hate having a principal in my room observing me. It just makes me uncomfortable. When I was a new teacher a long, long time ago, I would get really uptight about it. I would script every single minute of the entire class period so I could control as much as I possibly could so that I would get a good outcome. Um, nowadays, I, I don't really do that anymore. I just have the principal come in, and I make them participate in the lesson, whatever it is. I make them sit down and do whatever the kids are doing. If we're doing a science experiment, I make them wear goggles. If we're not doing a science experiment, sometimes I make them wear goggles anyway. <laughs> I'll make them regret coming in to observe Miss White. They have to draw the short straw to come in. But still, to this day, it does intimidate me because they're there to pass judgment on me. They're, they're judging whether or not I'm a fit teacher. And I know I'm a fit teacher, but boy, I sure hope that they can see it too. So I still do get intimidated by this. Usually when I teach, it's just me and my students. And, and so they're there to learn chemistry from me. But when a principal comes in, they're there for a different purpose. They're there to see whether or not I'm doing the job that I'm supposed to be doing, that I'm teaching competently, that the students are safe but they're not there for my lesson. They're there to judge me. And I, I believe that I've always been evaluated fairly. There's never been a time that I've had a, any feedback that I didn't feel was fair. Do you get evaluated at your job? Have you ever had a time when you felt like an evaluation that you got wasn't a fair one? You know, I'm, I've never had that happen to me. There have been times in some of our lives when we've had someone come in to evaluate us with an agenda ahead of time, and it didn't bring a favorable outcome. So how about spiritually? Have you ever been in a situation where you knew the right thing to say and the right thing to do, but you also knew that no matter how you said it or what you said, you were going to meet opposition to your words or to your actions? I want you to be thinking about that this morning. I want you to be thinking that idea of pre, about that idea of prejudging and the idea of facing opposition when you're speaking truth. As we talk about some events that happened in, in the ministry of Jesus during his time on earth in a message that I've titled, Which is Easier? So in his time uh, here on earth, Jesus spoke with lots and lots of people. He brought his message to many people. But he also, and many people accepted that message, but he also met quite a bit of opposition. Often he experienced those two at the same time. Not everybody liked what Jesus had to say. And as we walk through this world as a follower of Christ, 
not everybody is going to like what we have to say either. So let's look at a time when opposition was present when Jesus was teaching and how Jesus handled addressing his followers but also addressing those judges. This story comes to us from Luke chapter five, but it's also seen in Matthew nine, and it's also seen in Mark two. So these set of events are very well documented. It's, it's something, and it's a set of events that you probably have heard before. Um, it's about a time when Jesus was meeting in someone's home, and the home was filled with people, filled, every space was filled with people, spilling out the door and into the yard. And he was teaching in this little town, and there was a man who lived there, a man who was paralyzed. And this man had four friends who loved this man very, very much. And they heard that Jesus was there and that he was healing people. So they wanted Jesus to heal their friend. So they picked up their friend on a mat and took him to the house where Jesus was teaching and healing. But that house was so filled with people that they couldn't get in. So they did something a little crazy, a little desperate. They climbed up to the roof of that house and they broke through the thatch and they broke through the tiles and they used ropes and they lowered their friend down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. And Jesus healed that man. So I know many of you have heard that story before because it's a really good story about the love of friends and, and faith that spurs us into action. But I want you to hear it again this morning. Hear the friend's desperate faith and hear the miracle but this time hear the opposition as well. Listen carefully and consider how Jesus handled it but still brought a lesson for all of us. So this is Luke chapter five, verses 17 through 26. One day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men ca carried carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles and into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow? who speaks blasphemy, who can forgive sin but God alone. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of all of them and took what he had been laying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. <clears throat> there are so many layers of what's going on in this event. So many layers. Of course, the primary thing that's going on is the healing of this paralyzed man and the faith of his friends that would bring him all this way in this dramatic fashion in front of Jesus. That's the primary thing that's going on. But there's a lot of secondary subtexts that are going on here as well. Jesus is using this healing to teach, 
to teach us something about his identity and about the nature of God and God's love for us as well. And in reading this passage this week over and over and over, the main thing that I kept wondering about was this. There was an order to which Jesus did these things. He forgave the sins and then he healed the man. And in between, he asked this question, which is easier? Well, Jesus doesn't do things on accident or by mistake or, or serendipitously. So why? Why forgive the sins, have this interlude with the Pharisees in which he asked which is easier, and then heal? Why in that order? What's the difference between the two? Why are they important but separately? So in my classroom, when a principal comes in to evaluate me, I'm speaking to different audiences for, the, for different reasons on that day when I'm being evaluated. I'm showing different people different things. I'm teaching chemistry to my students who have come. They're there for the lesson. And I'm demonstrating to my principal that I'm competent to do that. It's two different purposes. Jesus is teaching to more than one audience as well. He's showing different people different things. He has a lesson for the religious leaders and those who opposed him. He has a lesson for the afflicted and the multitude who came to see him. And I think he has a lesson for you and I today as well. Let's begin with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What's Jesus teaching them? It starts like this. One day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. So they came from every village in Galilee. This miracle took place in a home in Capernaum, which was a village in Galilee. And Galilee is kind of a big area. And there were teachers of the law who came from all the villages. They also came from Judea and Jerusalem, a different region, Jerusalem being the main town there. And that region was 80 miles away. 80 miles away. So all of these teachers from the law, from all these different towns, have gathered to hear Jesus. Friends, they didn't say, wow, I really want to hear what this guy has to say. He sounds really cool. Maybe I'll get healed and make the trek. That's not why they did it. Jesus was gaining power and authority and followers. His message was spreading far and wide. They were the religious leaders of the day. Jesus' rise opposed their authority and they wanted to come and denounce him. They wanted to come and prove that the, he was a charlatan. They were prejudging Jesus. They were not there to learn. They were there to judge. They were prejudging him in direct opposition to him because when it says that the Pharisees were sitting there, uh, your version of the Bible might say that they were sitting by. <clears throat> that little Greek preposition means something. It has an important context. It means that they weren't sitting in the way of him teaching, not there. They were sitting there. They were sitting by. Think of a road. If this is the road that you're traveling on, being Jesus's message, they were not on the message. They were by the road. They were not interested in traveling along with Jesus. They were interested in sitting by and judging. So when I talk about teaching in my classroom, when I'm being observed, my, my, my students are sitting there. 
they're there to listen. Well, hopefully. Some days, no. <laughs> and the principal is sitting by. They're, they're not interested in the chemistry I have to teach. They're interested to see whether or not I'm doing my job correctly. The Pharisees were sitting by. The Pharisees were not there to learn. They were there to oppose. The Pharisees came for ammunition against Jesus, and they didn't have to wait long. Jesus gave them all the ammunition they needed to oppose them, to oppose him very, very quickly. Remember, one of the big questions we have this morning is, why did Jesus choose to forgive sin and then heal? One of the reasons was for this lesson for the Pharisees, whether they wanted to learn or not. Verse 20, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Matthew's account even says this, why are you thinking these evil things in your heart? Because these are the religious leaders of the time. They knew correctly that the only one who could forgive sin was God. That was correct. In claiming that ability, Jesus was claiming divinity. He was claiming to have God's identity. And because of the evil and the hardness in the Pharisee's heart, they couldn't understand that Jesus was telling the truth when he claimed to be divine. They had hardness in their heart. So even though they were the religious leaders of the time, the people who were supposed to be leading people to God, they missed that this was the Son of God. They even actively opposed it. So Jesus asks this question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. If they would not believe Jesus' ability to forgive sins, he gave them something that they could not deny. He used divine healing power so that that man did get up and walk home. Did Jesus heal this man so that the Pharisees, so he could prove the Pharisees wrong? Or did he do it to dazzle the crowd? The verses tell us why he did it. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. This healing was to demonstrate the divinity and the authority that Jesus has, the authority of his Father. That he had authority to forgive sins, a power that could only come to him from God was an expression of his divinity. Jesus was being who he was. He was being obedient to what his father called him to be. He healed that man because that was part of God's purpose for Jesus, and Jesus was obedient to it, even in the face of opposition of the Pharisees. So what lessons do we get here? I think that there are a couple lessons that we get here on how to op handle opposition to your faith when you live your life as a Christian, you're supposed to kind of live your faith out loud. It's going to come out in the things you say and the things you do and the decisions you make, how you behave. The world is going to oppose it. You don't have to wonder about that. It is. Many believed and saw the events of Jesus, and others opposed it. When you and I live out our faith, many will see and believe along with us. 
but many will oppose. So what do we do when someone scoffs at our mention of God? When we share a scripture and it's not received? When, we, when people mock our offer to pray, calling it useless? What about when our biblically driven morality is rejected as antiquated or out of touch? First of all, you need to know that it isn't personal. The scripture predicts well that opposition to our faith that we experience. It tells us that the world hated him first and so they would hate us as his followers. God's truth is a light, a light that the darkness doesn't only stand and actively detests. John 3 tells us this. This is John 3, 19 through 21. This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly, seen plainly and and that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So don't be surprised if the world rejects your faith. Darkness hates the light. Next, I know it's going to be really tempting to argue with somebody who wants to Uh, oppose your faith. That's gonna be a a big temptation for us. It can feel like they're insulting our God, something that we hold as believers very, very dearly. So you may feel compelled, we may feel compelled to defend him, stand up for God's honor. Aren't we silly? Aren't we precious when we do that? Great big old God and itty bitty us going, you leave my God alone, right? I, I assure you, I assure you that nothing that is said on this earth shakes or diminishes the God of the universe, okay? No attack can do that. God doesn't need you to defend him. So don't get sucked into arguments about God. Remember that arguments don't win souls. To put it in terms of 21st century philosophy, haters gonna hate. (laughs) The example that Jesus did set for us though is here. So the example that Jesus set was this. He, He didn't really argue. He just did what his father told him to. He came, he taught, he healed, he was obedient to his father's agenda, even obedient unto death, death on a cross, at the hands of that opposition. What would happen if we all just did that? Just lived a life obedient to God, shared, lived our faith, but didn't argue, didn't worry about the haters, let God worry about that, they're on their own path. Let them go. God will take care of them. What, what if we just lived an obedient life to God? I can tell you that you'd get farther that way. As an ex-hater myself, as someone who didn't come to Christ until I was an adult, I had plenty of arguments with Christians. None of them ever won. I just went away thinking they were foolish. Okay? Here's what did win with me. What did win with me was when people of faith genuinely lived their life for Christ. And I saw in them a peace and a love and a strength that I was lacking. That's what made me want to know more about Jesus. When you have a faith, your faith in God is something that the unbelieving world lacks. Some people will hate you for it. Don't help them hate you by arguing. Instead, be as obedient to God as you can, and by doing so, reflect that light that he has that draws people to him. 
That was actually the secret I found to when I was being observed in the classroom. Instead of being all uptight and worrying about what my principal was over here thinking or, or writing down or tap, tapping into their tablet, I just taught my class. I just started teaching my class. I did what I was there to do. I was, just did my job, and I did it well. And it became much less stressful after that. Now, Jesus forgave sin, and then he healed. He had one lesson for the Pharisees. The lesson for the Pharisees that he had was the assertion of his divinity. Whether they chose to believe it or not. But he had a different lesson, a different lesson for the multitude of people who sought him. Remember, uh, Jesus chose to forgiveness, delay, and then healing. What might the people, the multitude, learn from that? So think about those four friends. Just think about those guys for a minute. Unable to get through the crowd, so they climb up onto the roof, dig a hole, lower their friend down. They're like, yes, we got him down there. And Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. So think about those four friends desperate for their friend to receive healing. Now I'm speculating here, but I'm gonna guess that perhaps they went, uh, hold up, Jesus, he can't walk. Thanks for forgiving his sins and stuff, but he can't walk. Can't you do better than that? Now, you know, they were in the presence of Jesus, so they might not have thought that, and uh, that's what I probably would have thought, though. Hey, uh, excuse me, that's not what I brought him for. I brought him for healing. Get to it. (laughs) Can't you do better than that, Jesus? The answer is that even in the face of any illness, pain, hardship, no, Jesus cannot give us anything better than the forgiveness of sin for one simple reason. There is nothing better than that. When Jesus offers us the forgiveness of sin, what he's offering is this. He's offering restoration with the Father. We are all created to have a loving and nurturing and guiding relationship with our Father. Our hand was shaped to be clasped in God's loving and protective hand. That's what our hand was shaped for. And sin, what sin really is, all sin comes down to one thing. It's when we say, no, I can do it myself, I can do it my way. I know what I need. It's when we think we know better than God. It's when we take authority back for ourselves instead of leaving it for him. So when Jesus says, my friend, your sins are forgiven, what he's saying is, Give me your hand, child. We're gonna put it back where it belongs. You need to be with your father. That's what forgiveness of sins is. It's restoration. So when, sim- when, when Jesus does that, when he forgives our sins, what he's doing is restoring the relationship. He's placing our hand back in the hand of our father. That is an eternal restoration. He's fixing an eternal problem with an eternal solution. There's nothing better that Jesus can do for us. The physical paralysis of this man, it was secondary because the spiritual paralysis of this man was primary. It was of first importance. The cure to this man's spiritual need is an eternal one, just like the cure to my spiritual need and your spiritual need. The cure to this man's physical paralysis was a temporal one. It means it was fixed in time. It wasn't of that dire of importance. Now, the physical paralysis, though, was terrible, and it was a dire hardship, and illness and hunger, lost jobs, broken hearts, poverty, all these things. These are byproducts of living in that fallen, sinful world, 
Because the world has fallen, that's why we have suffering. That's why we need the healing. When remarking about the importance of why Jesus forgave the man's sins first before healing him, one commentator put it very bluntly. He said, what good is it if the man has two whole legs and he walked straight into hell with them? Now, beloved, don't mishear me on this. Please don't mishear me. Whatever trial or hardship that you face this morning, I assure you that God cares about it. I assure you of that. When you come forward and you share prayer concerns with Pastor Steve or your elders or your prayer team, we hear the cries of your heart. We know the things that you're facing. God knows them all the more. He understands them all the more. So don't misunderstand me now. I want and I pray for healing for you and those who you love who struggle with illness and infirmity. I want and pray strong, healthy marriages in in your life. And I, I want and I pray for you to have a stable income so that you can take care of your household and those who love you. And I want and I pray for you to have restored relationships for those who you need to forgive and for those who need to forgive you. I want and pray all that for you. So does God. But greater than that, more than that, totally eclipsing any of those things, I want and need for you to know the forgiveness of sins because in that there is a sustained everlasting, eternal relationship with God. And when that relationship is right, when that hand is placed in your father's hand, then when you face a fiery furnace of joblessness, it's all gonna be okay. And when you face a fiery furnace of of illness, or homelessness, or strife, you know you have Jesus, and with your hand in God's hand, you can face any of those things regardless of what the answer to prayer is. Paul tells us about this gift of having Jesus give us forgiveness of sins. He tells us this in 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we, are, for we who are alive and are always being given over for, to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So why did Jesus forgive sin first and then heal? For the multitude and for the afflicted, it was this. He forgave first to show what is most important. What is most important is right relationship with God. Once we're praying as believers, once we're praying knowing forgiveness of sin and having right relationship with God, well then when we pray to God for our physical needs, We are praying knowing that regardless of how he answers or doesn't answer, his grace is sufficient to sustain us. Remember that he is God and he is sovereign and we think we know. When we pray for things, we think we know what we need. But because you're a person of faith, that means you trust that God actually does know what you need. 
even when you don't understand his answer. I love it when Brother John Davis prays. Where's John Davis? Elder. He's an elder in our church. And I love when John Davis prays. And I love how he prays. He's a powerful man of prayer. And I love how he closes his prayers. He always prays. Uh, at the end, he says, we pray all these things believing, Father. Amen. And what it means to me when he prays that, we pray this believing. When we bring our requests to God, we pray believing that he is mighty to fulfill our prayers. But we also pray believing that regardless of what the answer to that prayer is, that his grace is sufficient to sustain us. That's how we live life, believing. So how about you? Do you believe this morning? How is your soul today? Is your soul in opposition with God? Have you been fighting with him lately? Stop fighting. Stop pulling your hand away. Let him take your hand. Be forgiven. Do you need healing in your body, in your family, in your marriage? Is your heart burdened for someone who you love? The worship team's gonna come back and they're gonna pray, they're gonna play for us and, and we're going to stand together and sing in just one moment. During that time, whatever's burdening you, whatever's troubling you, I ask that you would bring that forward to God and pray believing that he'll take those things and he will handle them for you. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father God, thank you that you love us all as your children and you desire us all to come to you and to give up that sin nature that opposes you. Forgive us when we try to do things our own way. Father God, I pray for all here who are in need of your forgiveness, who need you today. Soften their opposition, call them to you. Father God, I pray for those who are in need of healing today. We know that you are faithful to hear all our prayers and answer them all, but we also know that you are sovereign and know what's best for us. So Lord, Help us to accept whatever answer that you give because in your goodness and in your mercy we have placed our trust. We pray all these things believing, Father, in your son's precious name, amen. Would you stand and sing? Um, here is your blessing, church, before we're dismissed. Your blessing is this. May you know the freedom that comes with forgiveness of sins and that your spi spiritual healing is an eternal one. Amen. You're dismissed.